The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before listening to the podcast. New episodes air Tuesdays at 10pm on FX. Join us every week after the show. He's discovering that his father was complicit in very dark acts. You could say that that was part of some larger state machinery that someone deemed necessary. It was not an act of sadism. Maybe you would say not even an act of evil. But if your posture shifts a little internally, suddenly it is, and suddenly you're looking at it in a different light. And he keeps saying to Elizabeth, crying out in a way, saying, you know, this is getting to me. Welcome to the Americans podcast for season five. I'm June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and I'm your host for the series, which goes behind the scenes of the show. Today, we'll be talking about episode 506, Crossbreed, with Stephen Schiff, who wrote the episode. Then we'll learn how the visual effects team sent Gabriel to Washington when actor Frank Langella wasn't able to make the trip. Finally, the property master will share some of the problems he faces in producing convincing Russian housewares and cars. First, Stephen Schiff. So Stephen, you're the rare writer who's had a very high level of success as a journalist and critic and as a screenwriter and TV writer. I believe you were a New Yorker staff writer. I was. Worked at the at Vanity Fair. You've written movies, you know, little things like True Crime and Lolita. What's the biggest difference about working in a TV writer's room? There are big differences between all those things that I've done. Working at The New Yorker and at Vanity Fair was an occupation where I went out and I would do some reporting. You know, I'd do interviews, mm-hmm. I'd get a lot of data, and I'd comb through stuff, and then I'd come back into my solitary chamber and spin it out, yeah. you know, and, and spin out. That was that experience. And then the other thing about that was, so I'd write one of those big, long New Yorker pieces, mm-hmm. and then two weeks later, maybe three there would be in print and I'd see it and there'd be people on the subway reading it and I'd be hanging over them to see if they turned the page or just went on to something else that had that kind of satisfaction in it. But I did it a long time and I wanted to move Uh on. And then when you're doing a movie, it's this gigantic machine and it's endlessly slow. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even though everybody on a movie set is going, come on, come on, come on, we've got to make our day. So much goes into it and so many cooks, but in the end you're writing alone and you're kind of thinking alone, and you you know the, everyone's waiting for the writer. You know, no one no one can work until the writer's done, so they all hate you. The auteur theory got institutionalized into the movie industry. Yeah. The writer doesn't have the power, even though the writer's creating absolutely everything. Yeah. And people don't really usually know that everything you see is on the page first, and the writer put it there. Mm. So, all that said, TV is an entirely different animal because it is so collaborative. Mm. Every step of the way to try to say, oh, that was my idea is silly in TV. It doesn't always work this way, but it will make a grown up out of you because <laughs> that, that kind of infantile egotism that goes into, wait, 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 my idea, wait, hold on. That has no place here. That 
really, you know, sticks out like a sore thumb when you're, when you're really trying to get TV scripts done and get them into production and, and, you know, revise them and change because of the location that yeah. is different and all that, all that stuff that goes into TV and it's fast. Yeah. And so, so in that sense, in the sense of speed, TV is kind of in between my journalistic experience and the movie experience because you do have the satisfaction of, well, it's not two or three weeks, but pretty soon after you write it, they're shooting it, yeah. and pretty soon after they're shooting it, you have something to see, uh-huh. and not that long after that, it's on a TV near you. Right. So one of the big themes in this season, it seems to me, is Philip and Elizabeth kind of taking responsibility for the personal dimensions of their work. So the episode begins with Gabriel asking Elizabeth how Philip is taking the death of Randy, the lab worker. I have to say, this feels to me like one of the occasions, rare occasions, where the characters are really too hard on themselves. Because, you know, it's too bad about Randy, sure, stipulated. But <laughs> without the information that they got from him, they couldn't get the information from the people in Topeka. They wouldn't know what was happening with the whole wheat thing. It wasn't a random cheap murder. Am I being too easy on them, do you think? No, you're taking the sort of uh, art of war position. <laughs> oh, I'm so too And I'm not sure that Philip still is. Yeah. You know, so I think there's there's a character movement there. Yeah. Philip has always kind of winced, at least internally, mm-hmm. when someone had to die unnecessarily. But he certainly dispatched his share of people. And, and you could always see, you know, and Ma- Matthew delivers this so, so beautifully, mm-hmm. that, you know, when, for instance, the Afghani guy in the kitchen and yeah. the guy who froze in the woods, those are all bad news yeah. for Philip. But... Now it's really, really, really getting to him. And this seemed like a kind of straw that that breaks the camel's back. He is anyway kind of moving morally and moving, you know, emotionally into a new place. And this this step on that journey is a big one, even though you could, in good KGB terms, absolutely justify it logically. But if it were not that, it would be another thing. And so I I just I think that's this is a marker of that Mm -hmm. kind. It's it's weighing heavily on him whether it's right or wrong. It is. Yeah, lots of internal emotional chemistry is going on with him because let's let's not forget Est plays a role here too, right. and all that stuff that it's bringing up in the same episode. He's discovering that his father was complicit in very dark acts. Mm-hmm. You could say that that was part of some larger state machinery that right. someone deemed necessary. Mm-hmm. It was not an act of sadism. Maybe you would say not even an act of evil, mm-hmm. but. If your posture shifts a little internally, suddenly it is, and suddenly you're looking at it in a different light. And he keeps saying to Elizabeth, to you know, he's tr- sort of crying out in a way, saying, you know, this is getting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, someone please, we have to do something differently. From the scenes in Russia, we also get a sense of changing times. Dmitri seems more afraid of the mysterious forces who are responsible for the market scam than he is of the KGB, which feels like a significant moment and also a tough thing for Oleg to understand that the KGB are not the most feared force in the country. So that that is something that I worked on a lot. Of course, we kind of think of the KGB and, and Soviet Union and the Soviet government and the uh, nomenclatura and the mm-hmm. party and all that, the mm-hmm. Kremlin, all that is this one kind of monolithic force marching steadfastly in a certain direction. Yes. And of course, that was not true. And certainly by early mid 80s, <laughs> um, it was not true. Certainly, you know, as Brezhnev left uh, and Andropov came to power and then Chernenko and all mm-hmm. that, things were really, really shifting. And there were 
big internal power struggles inside the party and inside mm-hmm. Russia. And the KGB was really separate from the party mm-hmm. and really separate from the Kremlin. And it's important to understand that, that uh, you know, that was not a monolithic force, mm-hmm. that it wasn't sort of the KGB doing the Kremlin's bidding. Yeah. Now, for this one brief shining moment, <laughs> if you can call the Andropov administration right, right. one brief shining moment, it sort of was because Andropov had been the head of the KGB, uh-huh. uh, not unlike certain people I can name. Mm-hmm. And for that moment, Andropov had the opportunity to kind of clean up the party because the party was hopelessly, terribly yeah, yeah, corrupt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, And the KGB was his instrument. And the KGB, nasty though they may be, could be redirected from cracking down on dissidents uh-huh. to cracking down on corruption. Yeah. And that's what he was trying to do. Uh-huh. But he was, for, almost from the moment he took office, he was gravely, gravely ill. Uh-huh. And he began to disappear, and mm-hmm. finally he, he died. Mm-hmm. So he could no longer sort of puppet master it mm-hmm. from above. And so it took a, a different course. So when we see the KGB fight against corruption, which Oleg is a big part of, we're not supposed to think that, oh, Oleg just happens to be a good man in this corrupt organization. The KGB really was focused on fighting corruption. The KGB really was, during that period, focused on fighting corruption. That was a, that was a real thing that happened. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was a, a battle they fought. And because corruption was so endemic mm-hmm. and so much a part of the system, I think yeah. it surprised a lot of people. And it's a very kind of little known chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it really is is based in historic fact. Coming back to America, there's a callback to season four in this episode when a Mary Kay representative comes to the Jennings's house and Elizabeth later checks on young He's old home. The Jenningses seem to be getting a little paranoid, or is that me? I wonder if a few seasons ago, if Elizabeth would have just said, oh, wow, Mary Kay, that's almost funny that they came back. But now it's as if she sees that as, wow, are they on to me? Or am I misinterpreting what's going on? To me, that? you're misinterpreting Okay, it. Tell, me, tell me how you see it. Because what I think is going on there mm-hmm. is that what happened with Elizabeth and young he was a true emotional relationship. So their friendship. Their friendship and her duty to her you know, job. Mm-hmm meant that Elizabeth had to destroy young he, basically. And uh, in so doing, completely destroy and abandon that friendship. Uh And that hurt. Even even though Elizabeth is still very tough, and if there's a softening in Philip, you don't see much in Elizabeth. Still, there's something emotional going on, some churning going on in Elizabeth. And for once, she had a friend, and she had to destroy that. And the feeling, the residue of that feeling is still in there. Yeah. And then this Mary Kay woman comes to the door and it's kind of, it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's, yeah. it it's her, her acid flashback or yeah, her PTSD yeah. or something. Yeah. It's so, so that's to me, it's not, it's not a fear of being discovered so much to me uh-huh. as this unwelcome emotional reminder, you know, and then, and then I think it leads directly to her going and looking at young he's house and, just trying to, mm-hmm. in her very unconscious way, work that through. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe my recourse to paranoia was more about, you know, the way that Elizabeth Philip are seeing Stan and Relay's mm-hmm. relationship. They can't just let it happen. They're, they're seeing all these other things going on. In this episode, uh, we saw Elizabeth do a nice bit of business with a, making a key for a lock on an office that she needs to break into. Does incorporating that kind of tradecraft um, into the script, is that particularly challenging when you're when you're writing because you've got to get in all those bits of realistic action? 
it's fun. It's hard work in the world of this kind of storytelling. There's a lot of spycraft at various levels. And, yeah. and, you know, this show tends to sensitize one to it yeah. because we really do use consultants yeah. uh, who know something. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we even use the actual objects right. that, you know, that they have, as I'm sure you've discussed on the podcast before. We're very, very careful about it. At the same time, sometimes, you know, these things are more laborious than we can really, really show. Yeah. Yeah. So part of this, the, the storytelling feat that <laughs> maybe I'm trying to accomplish from time to time is to make it something that is compact, visual, communicable, and yet true, and yet yeah. really does the job. Yeah. That's what we tried to set up in that scene. I yeah, yeah. It works. Okay, so the episode ends with Philip and Elizabeth taking Paige to meet Gabriel. Huge moment, but I was really struck by another thing that happened between them, which was Gabriel answering Philip's questions about his father. And Gabriel talking about the camps, which has been coming up again and again over the course of this season. How does learning the truth about his family's past affect Philip? That revelation seems particularly hard hitting. Yeah. I mean, Philip is really on a journey of self-discovery. Yeah. And that's not something these guys are trained for or right. are used to or have the language for by any means. Est gave him some of that. And being a, a father yeah. and having to deal with regular old American-style father stuff gave him entree into this different kind of thinking. There's a chemistry working in mm -hmm, him. Mm -hmm. And one of the big, big questions before him is, how did I wind up being me and doing this? Yeah. You know, And as he is more and more disturbed by the this that he's doing, He's looking back into his past, and obviously his past is really occluded from him. And these flashes of things that don't add up exactly are uh -huh. coming to him, except, you know, they're going to add up. And some people are, are ahead of him, and yeah. I actually think Elizabeth is a little bit ahead of him and knows knows really what he, what he's going to find out from yeah, Gabriel. Yeah, yeah. Even if she doesn't articulate it, even to herself, but she's she's going to be less surprised than right, he, but, right. you know, what does it mean, the boots with the blood and the uh -huh. stuff he brought home yeah. and mother never talked about him and what is this going to wind up being? What does it say about me? And then in that scene with Gabriel, he asks if that was why right. they went to him and and Gabriel says, well, not really because we were watching for Billy and you, you were talented. And what is that saying? Mm -hmm. You know, you're a talented killer. You're right. a talented, ruthless assassin. Yeah seducer yeah so these blows about himself are what are raining down on him it's it's funny because their training is so good yeah. in any situation they know what to do but this is the one area where he doesn't seem to have those tools he's not prepared for that yeah I, i'm not sure they always know what to do but they have resources that and they instincts, draw on yeah you know but this is not an area where he has any resources to yeah. draw on yeah. except that he's now beginning you know est and all these other things are providing him you know these little beginnings seedlings of resource uh, he can both draw on and and that may cause him harm it's hard to yeah. hard to know yeah right thank you Stephen. sure do you remember when Gabriel wandered around the great monuments of our nation's capital? Well, in fact, actor Frank Langella wasn't able to make the trip to DC. So how did they make it seem that way? Visual effects whiz Luke DiTomaso of The Molecule and The Americans co-producer David Woods explained it to me. Woods speaks first. Gabriel's approaching the Lincoln Memorial. He's having a reflective moment, really thinking over his time here in the U.S., and 
it was a production constraint that we could not get Frank Langella, the actor, to Washington, D.C. So the idea was we had his regular double, a guy named Bo, who does a really good job of, of uh, matching his actions, and um, took him to D.C., with Dan Stoloff and the director, Roxanne Dawson, and they filmed these scenes with the double and then also turned around and shot basically the reverse, which would be the background plate to put Gabriel, Frank Langella, into. And Luke was at the shoot for the, the Frank Langella part of it. Right. In this moment, we're looking at two different shots put together. So this is our double. This mm-hmm. is his back. He's walking up. Yeah, he does a great job. He's just even matching his gait, the way he walks, and lots of that. All the shots on his back are not Frank Langella. Mm-hmm. The shots where we turned around, they shot the, the double, but obviously with the wrong face, and, then, mm-hmm. and they kindly asked him to step aside. So we shot what's called the clean plate, which is just the background and no foreground element. And then on a separate day in the Gowanus, we set up a blue screen, we matched the lighting as best we could, and we matched the angle as best we could, and then we shot Frank Langella against blue screen. So now we have two different elements. We have the background shot at the Lincoln Memorial, we have Frank Langella shot in the Gowanus, and we combine them together. So in shots where we see his face like this, this is him against blue, composite against the background. And then when we turn around and we see his back, that's the, the double and so here, there's just little details. You know, Dan did a beautiful job on this. Like, I'm looking at the back of his head that's picking up light that's reflecting off the Lincoln Memorial. When we shot <laughs> Frank Langella, we only had him against blue. You know, so we're looking at the background and trying to get as many cues as possible in terms of how do we integrate him into this footage. And then I don't know if you can see, just there's this yeah. very subtle haze where the light is wrapping over his shoulder. And so that's something that we did in the composite to help make those two things feel like it wasn't cut out, that yeah. his shoulder is actually receiving light from from the Lincoln Memorial. So these are these are little things that hopefully you'll never, ever, ever in a million years even think about. You're just, he's there. He's yeah. thinking about his time in the United States, about his life's work and all the the things and just my goodness the gravitas of his performance is just stunning and if any of the visual effects aren't right we just destroy his performance because mm-hmm. now the audience is thinking about what's why is this weird or why doesn't this look right and so it's a responsibility in that regard as well this methodology that that we've done more with chris long in terms of shooting in the real location even mm-hmm. with a limited crew and then compositing into the foreground key elements that we can get in the Gowanus, I think is a brilliant way to open up the scope of the show. There's a limitation to what you can shoot out on the street. You know, you're always trying to play New York for DC and 2016 for 84. As you'll have noticed, this season involves a lot more scenes set in Russia. What kind of headaches does that bring the props crew? Let's find out. I'm here once again in the show's production office with Daniel Fisher, the property master of the Americans. Dan, I imagine there's an extra challenge beyond period props, which is hard enough, but to acquire foreign props. The thing with Moscow and Russia stuff, we can't always get stuff that's properly, quote unquote, Russian, you know, but what we try to do is find stuff that looks like it. And very often what we do is is if it were popular in the United States in the mid to late 60s up to the mid 70s then that to us is like 1984 Russia. (laughs) They're just a little behind, you know, they get the stuff after we're done with it. 
Now, let's talk about cars, because I know from last season, talking mm. to Mary Ray Thewlis, the show's producer, that cars are just a problem because they're, they've got to be 80s cars and there just aren't that many 80s cars around. But Russian cars from the 80s? How right. do you do that? Well, first of all, 80s cars in general, what, what we really mean in a way is early 70s up to 1984 is allowable to us. Mm. Because if you think a second, like I personally, I drive a 2010 Kia Soul. So that's seven years. That's a seven-year-old car that I drive around mm -hmm. every day. So it's not like every day you drive, you, all you see are 2017 cars. <laughs> and it's harder, believe it or not, to get 1980s cars than it is to get 1950s or 1960s. Because the type of people that own 1950s or 60s cars, they tend to be very fanatical about that. And they treat their cars like their children or better, <laughs> probably better than their own children. Whereas 1980s, it's like, oh, I got this K car that's been sitting out in the in the backyard for, for 30 years, uh, you know, whatever. They don't really tend to it as, as well as they would a 50s or 60s. So for us, a lot of times it's like, well, we found something that's perfect, but it's got a big rust spot. There's a lot of maintenance work we have to do to make something not look like it's been sitting in somebody's backyard for 30 oh. years. I have a picture car company that we work through called Auto Film Club. Auto Film Club is owned and run by a guy named Ralph Lucci. And Ralph has hundreds and hundreds of cars of all different kinds of periods because he doesn't just deal with us. He deals mm -hmm. with many of the productions in New York. Mm -hmm. If I say I need some from 1980 to 1984, it's this type it's this color this is what we want ralph will not only send me photos of what he has but he gets on the horn to owners from all over the area and in the case of the russian cars there really were only about 16 people we found that had what we really wanted the two most popular cars in russia at that especially at the time were a car called a lada and volga so we tried to find as many lada and volga owners as we could and, and that totaled about maybe a dozen in the entire area. But then doing our research into Moscow and Russia street scenes, we saw, oh, you know what? There's plenty of Mercedes. There's plenty of, uh -huh. of, uh, of European cars of that time. But to make it really feel Russia and not just generic Europe, we tried to, to have as many of the Volgas and the Ladas as we can. We'll use the same cars from one episode to the next, and we, we just try to shift them around. Maybe if one is, was prominently seen in one episode, we make sure it isn't prominently seen in the next. But then we have a hero car. It's, it's, it's one that's featured as a, uh, as a, as a main character would use. So once we introduce that, we can't use that again. Thanks to Stephen Schiff, David Woods, Luke DiTomaso, and Daniel Fisher for talking episode 506 with me. Thanks also to Ethan Simon for recording assistance and to the Americans Sarah Nolan for her organizational help. Please join us next week when we'll be talking about episode 507, The Committee on Human Rights, with Matthew Rees, who directed the episode as well as starring in it. I'm June Thomas. This show is part of the Panoply Network. <laughs>